0: When you tell these people all these things, they will say to you, why has the Lord declared all this terrible disaster against us? What is our iniquity? What is our sin that we have committed against the Lord your God? Then you will answer them because your father abandoned me. Your father has abandoned me. This is the Lord's uh, declaration. And followed other gods and served them and bowed and worshipped to them. Indeed, they abandoned me and did not keep my instruction you did not you did more evil than your fathers look each one of you uh, was following the stubbornness of his evil heart not obeying me so i will hurl you from this land into a land that you and your fathers are not familiar with there you will worship other gods both day and night for i will not grant you grace verse 14 whoever look the days are coming the lord's decoration when It will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought uh, the Israelites from the land of Egypt, but rather, as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites from the land of the north, and from all the other lands where he has banished them, for I will return them to their land that I gave to their ancestors. This is the word of God for his people. Uh, So the the the, the of our sermon, I turned, stay still. Uh, The Stubborn God. The stubborn God, the God who stubbornly cares for His children, and I want to read kind of an article that was that came out in the New Yorker a few years ago about uh, giving up. Um, First off, stubborn. What does the word stubborn mean? According to the dictionary, it means refusing to change an opinion or a course of action in spite of difficulty or urging. There's an article by uh, the comedian who writes in the New Yorker, Jack Handy. uh, Never give up, he says. We like, the, we like the idea of never giving up, right? I mean, we like movies like Rocky and you know, never giving up against all odds. They never give up. They never uh, take no for an answer. They never take losing as a result. They're always never giving up. That's a very American attitude. We, that's a positive attitude. Stubborn against all odds. Jack Handy writes, I could say one, one thing to the young people of today. It would be this, never give up keep trying, pushing, struggling, even if you don't know what your goal is or why you want to achieve it. As you march down the street, not giving up, hold your head high and swing your elbows. People will recognize you as someone who won't give up, and they will get out of your way. Some of them will even hide. Some will try to discourage you. They'll say that what you're doing is illegal or a sin or a violation of the health code. They may cling to your legs, causing you to drag them along or jump onto your back, pleading In the name of God, please stop what you're doing. Like if you're trying to learn an instrument, like it's horrible, stop. You're not any good. Or a comedian, you're not very funny, stop. Keep going, rest assured, they're jealous. We're not jealous, honestly, they may say. Just please stop, maybe you've stuck a nerve. No, you haven't struck a nerve, they'll say. What you're doing is just awful, and we'd like you to stop. Let that be your inspiration. Shake off the naysayers, tread on, through the mud and the filth and the slime knowing that you have a higher purpose remember nobody liked van gogh's work and if nobody likes yours it's probably a sign you're a genius look to the horizon see that little dot no not that one the one that's even further out you can barely see it now don't stop until you reach it take out your machete and hack a new path through the jungle even if there is an old path just a few feet away Fend off the monkeys of good manners and the sloth of patience. We are born with the instinct not to give up. As babies, we cry and scream until we get, we get what we want. But somewhere along the line, we lose that ability. People talk us out of our crazy ideas. People who live in the so-called real world where things make sense, they've never attempted the impossible. But you have many, many times. Keep pushing ahead. Not in a way that seems pushy, but in a way that says you won't stop. Some people say you shouldn't bang your head against the wall. Tell that to the woodpecker. Along the way there will be compromises but don't give up. With each on uh, whatever thing that you have to do is just one step closer to your goal. When you finally reach the first stage of success congratulate yourself but remember that there are 24 more stages of success. Some people may ask I'll take a rest. Even a little, little one is the same as giving up. Yes, it is. But if you need to pretend to give up so that people will leave you alone, go ahead. Then keep doing what you do, but even harder. He keeps talking more and more about not giving up. Keep pushing, scrapping, clawing, and begging, and not giving up. When you think about Starbucks. I know some of us love Starbucks. Maybe you worked at Starbucks. But I didn't know this, but Howard Schultz who is the co the founder of Starbucks, um, who, I guess, I don't know when this article was written, but it's a billion-dollar company, right? And they make billions of dollars in profits. It's become a, become a household name in America. But did you know that in 1980s, Schultz noticed that coffee bar trend in Europe and wanted to bring the idea to North America? However, the concept was so bizarre at the time that people could not perceive the idea of serving car- coffee and. Pa- seller for homebrewing in order to bring his new idea to life he needed 1.6 million dollars he met with numerous potential investors but was shut down 242 times before someone gave him a shot without his persistence self-confidence and the strong belief he had in his own ideas there would be no be no tall nor venti nor grande today giving up no people are just keep on fighting and keep on being persistent to reach their dream I say all that because I want to introduce the book of Daniel and introduce to you what we see in the, the, the entire book of Daniel. I want to present a little bit of a history lesson. Um, I have a map here, if this works. Uh, okay, here we go. Sweet. Um, this is a map of the Babylonian Empire, if you can't see The Egyptians we know about the Egyptians because of the Book of Exodus, and Egypt has always been a kind of a primary uh, character in the Old Testament, but they very much were a, a, a long, they were very much a, a, an empire at that time, but they weren 't as strong and they were kind of losing a lot of their power by the time that the Babylonian Empire came kind of on the forefront, came to the scene and during this time. Um, in kind of 609 B.C., the king of Judah, Josiah, uh, he, he faces the, the, uh, the pharaoh, uh, Nectar II, and they have this battle south of the Sea of Galilee. And you can kind of see, kind of just there near uh, Samaria and Jordan, there is this major battle, and the king died. The uh, king of Judah, Josiah, died. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 35, 20, that he goes and he confronts the pharaoh of Egypt, and he dies in this battle. It was bizarre that Josiah, who was a faithful man of God, he was a great king of God, and he brought a lot of the, the religion back to of, of observing the Passover and, and brought back a lot of the things that we see in the law. He brings it back to, to, to Judah, and the people start celebrating God and worshiping God in the temple again. But then this weird occurrence happens where Josiah the king goes out and faces the Pharaoh and loses his life. And Egypt, Egypt kind of takes over Judah. He takes over a lot of the Palestinian, uh, Palestine area. And we have a new king. And then during this battle of, uh, up here in, in, in Kamesh, up here in the you know, north of the, of, the, of the map here in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians have their final battle in 605 B.C. And this is the, kind of the last stand for the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonians' Won the, won the battle. They, they conquered the empire completely in 605. And the general of the Babylonian empire is king. Well, he wasn't king then. He was the son of the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And he removes the Egyptian empire from, the, from Judah, from Israel, from the Palestine area. And now Babylon becomes the main uh, player in that region. And so the, uh, the the nation of Judah, the nation of Israel, uh, they've had to pay to Babylon a tax. Uh, to they have to pay this tax to the to the Babylon. And and we, so we see that the Babylonian Empire taking over and becoming the the, the major power in the region. And what happens is, is that Israel, I mean Judah, and their kings, they have to pay money to Nebuchadnezzar and to uh, the Babylonian Empire, but the kings kind of you know, start rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. You see this in the book of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and in 2 Kings, that they begin to rebel. Jehoiakim in 605 starts rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, who then swiftly sends troops to settle the matter in 601 and 598. There's a new king on the throne in Judah. But then he is quickly replaced by Zedekiah in 597. And a lot of what happens when we see Daniel in 605, when the Babylonians take over the empire, they become the major players in the region. They end up becoming the major power in Palestine in charge, ruling over Judah. And during that time, when they first come in and take over what the Egyptians had first controlled, they took back to Babylon a lot of the high officials and the sons of high officials in Judah. And that included Daniel and his friends. So Daniel and his friends, when we get to Daniel 1 next week, we see that they're taken to Babylon in 605. And a lot of the other people were left in Judah. And then there was another kind of, the king of Judah he rebels, he revolts against the Babylonians. and They come back and they swiftly kind of control the area and they take more people with them to Babylon. And there's this mass exodus. There's this uh, deportation to Babylon, to the city of Babylon, and at the end of it, in five five eighty eight, the entire area of Judah, all the people, basically, have been taken to Babylon. The temple has been destroyed, and the king, king, you know, the the throne that was that was promised to David for for uh, for eternity was taken away. There was no uh, that there, no, the, the, there was no heir of, of David on the throne. And so we see this. I wanted to show us a, few, a little bit of history that, that brings us to what we see in Daniel chapter 1, we'll talk about next week. And so we, we see that God, this, 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 the Father, Father God, the Lord, who took care of Israel, who gave them this land, and after hundreds of years, they have revolted and worshipped other gods and have forsaken the law and now there is judgment for their action and for their sins. Now, this, The story of Israel is so sad. If you've ever read through the whole Old Testament, it's such a sad story. And then when you, especially when you get to Luke chapter 15 and you read the prodigal the prodigal son, it very much betrays Israel as this, this son, this this child of a loving father who decides to go their own way, to take their inheritance and do whatever they want, to do what their heart desired. You think about the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son, why would he want to leave his father? Especially when you read the end of the story and how the father shows such a compassion and love on his son you're like why would you ever leave him in the first place why would you abandon such love and care with your inheritance to be free and do what he desired only to return penniless full of guilt to a loving father who runs and embraces his wayward son god is the great father who stubbornly cares for his wayward son and so first point that i want to talk about is god is the great father And so I want to just kind of look at Genesis up until kind of our history lesson that I just kind of went through, how God portrays himself as the great father. Starting in in Genesis chapter 2 and talking about the garden, where where the Lord God has, I love how in the the Old Testament, I see in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, how when Moses is writing Genesis, how he places God's name, he says, Lord God, or Yahweh, right? He doesn't say just God. He says Yahweh, the name that he gave Moses at the burning bush, he calls him that. He says, Yahweh God has made the earth and the heavens. So the God that rescued Israel from Egypt, the one who gave the Ten Commandments to the people, that's Yahweh God. He created the heavens and the earth. He's not some other God like the Egyptian gods or the Babylonian gods or the Assyrian gods. He is the God. He is the one true God, and he created the heavens and the earth. The Yahweh God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. He gave the man life. He became a living being. God is the father of man. And the Lord, Yahweh, God planted a garden in Eden. He caused every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. Just beautiful description. He placed the man that he made and gave life in the garden that God had planted. He placed the man in the garden to work it and watch over it as the gardener and the king. Gardener and king of the garden. He said to the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, including the tree of life. We forget that in the story, that that the man can eat from the tree of life. All the trees that were present in the garden, he can eat except one. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. God said to the man, you must not eat from the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. He also said to the man, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. God created the woman from the rib of the man, and he brought the woman to the man. And the woman, of the man said, I love it, whoa, man. I mean, he's like, whoa, I mean, this is awesome. He doesn't pick it. I mean, it's not like Adam's like, all right, this is what I want. I want to look like this, and I want to look like that. God makes it, and Adam is completely ignorant of what she will look like, what she will be, and God presents her to him. There's a similar story of, of Abraham whose commissions he trusted to bring a wife to his son Isaac. And Rebekah is what brought to Isaac, right? Isaac didn't go, all right, this is what I want. I want to look like this. I want to like that. But the... Abraham commissioned this person to one of his trusted servants to go and bring back a wife for his son, and he brings back Rebekah, and he sees Rebekah. It's very similar that, uh, that you see the, the, the man receiving the woman, the blessing that he has received. God's blessing to the man. They were both naked yet felt no shame. God is great in this story. He is a great father. He is providing. He is caring. He is loving to Adam and Eve. Same uh, later on with uh, the earth and after the fall and we see that God blesses Adam with a son named Seth after the murder of Abel by Cain in chapter 4 of Genesis. Seth is blessed with a son named Enosh. At the same time, people begin to call the name of the Lord. They begin to pray to the Lord asking God to provide for them. And God provided for Adam and his family even after the episode with the servant in Genesis 3 in the garden, God cared for his creation. He, he answered their prayers and their calls because they weren't in the garden anymore, right? They had to grow their own food. They had to take care of themselves, but God provided for them. He cared for them. He answered their prayer. He was a good father. A, a new beginning, a recommitment to the blessing of his creation is given. They lived long lives, right? And you read about how long they lived. 900 years, 800 years, 700 years. Exodus 20:12 honored your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Long life was a sign of blessing. That God was blessing his children and his people. It was a sign of a blessing by God. Enoch walked with God closely in Genesis chapter 5, reminiscent of Adam's experience in the garden, imminent care in, in the presence of God with his people. Enoch walked with God. God was very present with his creation. God is intimate with his own. Psalms 116:9, graces of the Lord, gracious of the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I, I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to uh, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bondfully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. God was was a great father to his creation. Even after the fall, even after Adam and Eve had sinned and disobeyed, he was still a great father who provided and cared for his creation and was present with them. Even in the promised land with Israel in Exodus 15, we see how Moses' his song, how he, he, he shows and describes how God was so faithful to Israel and how he cared for them and protected them and saved them from Egypt. The manna and the quail from the sky to give them food to eat as they walked to the promised land. Water from the rock while they're in the wilderness. He gave them his law. He gave them a constitution to govern their society in the days of Joshua, he gave them all the land he promised them, all the land he promised to Abraham he gave to his people. They had rest on every side. Everything was fulfilled by God that was promised. They had protection from enemies. They had pasture land around their cities to to farm and to produce food, to trade and, and to do commerce. The land stretched from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Anytime your society is located near a sea and a river, that's very, very good. That means, that means you can trade with the whole world. That means you have fertile land, and God had given them this land. They didn't fight for it. They didn't earn it. It wasn't like they were great... The valley of Lebanon in the north, they had near the... They had land near the heart of the world and a river to the east and lakes in between. Fishing, commerce, farming, a fertile land that would grow plenty of food for the people. God is a great father and he cared for Israel and provided for them. So when we get to Jeremiah, God's reasonable response to abandonment. We see this, that God is a great father, and it's portrayed in the word. Well, but there's always this but. And the but is, is that while God is a great father, his children continue to abandon him. We go back to Genesis chapter 3 with the woman and the man who were given all of these things. They were given this garden to live in. They were naked and in a They had all the food they could ever need, and they abandoned God. The woman was deceived by the serpent. She believed the words of the serpent, that the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would make them like God, knowing good and evil. And God knows it will make them like Him, and He has kept what is good and desirable from them. That was the lie, that God was really not good, that He really wasn't a great father, that He was actually withholding things that were good for you, because He doesn't want you to have it. He's jealous. She sees the fruit that is good and delightful and she desired to obtain the wisdom that was withheld from her and her husband. And they both eat of the tree. They hide from the Lord God among the tree of the garden when they heard Him walking in the garden. They abandoned their father and chose to obey the words of the serpent. They ran away and they hid from their father. And He reasonably responds to their abandonment. He sends them away from the garden, from the tree of life. They don't want the garden. They don't want God. That's why they hide from him. You just think about Genesis 2, 8 through 24. What was given to Adam and Eve? What they had. What they possessed. And that's why it's so sad because they abandoned the God who gave it to them. The Father who gave it to them, they abandoned. They don't want him. They don't want what was was They wanted what was not good for them. They traded the life that they had with God, their father, for the life that the servant sold them. And God reasonably responded to their decision, their act, by sending them away from the garden that he planted for them. And they don't want their father's love. So he sends them away. A grieving father mourns their rebellion. Just think about God. I mean, God is perfect. God is doesn't change. God doesn't have the same emotions as we have. But think of it as a yourself in God's shoes and that your children, have you cared for and provided for and given them everything they needed, run away from you. Think of the grieving response you would have to that. The next thing is the flood. We talked about Genesis chapter four and five and how God provided for the people even after they sinned against him and cared and walked with them. But yet, Genesis 6 says that wickedness spread on the earth. Every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. They refused to call on the name of the Lord like before. They abandoned walking with God like Enoch. The earth was filled with wickedness, it says. And only Noah was blameless. The the world was filled with lawlessness and God grieved deeply in response to their abandonment of him. It's another abandonment. They abandoned the God who was taking care of them to do their own thing, to follow their own desires. So he reasonably responds to their hatred of him by removing them from from his creation. He says, I'm bringing a flood, flood floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven and the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish because they hate me. They want nothing to do with me. Only Noah and his family were spared from God's judgment. So we see here with Israel how God provided for them and cared for them, but yet they abandoned God. It says in Jeremiah 16 that Jeremiah was commissioned by God to be basically a living sermon, a sermon for Judah. He was not supposed to get married. He wasn't supposed to mourn at funerals. and He wasn't supposed to go to parties. You're like, why would you not be able to do that? Because he wanted Judah to see that when you look at Jeremiah's life, you see a man knowing that judgment is coming. Why would you get married if judgment is coming? Why would you celebrate when judgment is coming? Death is coming. Celebrations will cease because death is coming, God says. Don't mourn for anyone because removal of God's faithful love and compassion. God doesn't have compassion and love for for Israel anymore because they have worshiped other gods. They have moved, they have abandoned him. They don't lament for the death of Judah. No comfort will be given. So, therefore, don't mourn at funerals. Don't present any comfort to these people. He says, don't even go to feasts with his neighbors. There's an elimination of joy and gladness, an elimination of celebrations altogether because judgment is coming. So, Jeremiah walks and he says that judgment is coming. And after hearing Jeremiah's pronouncement of judgment by God, we see in verse 10 that the people think God's judgment is excessive and harsh. What is our iniquity, they say? What is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? What did I do? What did I do? I didn't do anything. I'm perfect. I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. You're, you're crazy, Jeremiah. Why would, why would God judge us? What have we done wrong? What sins have we done? He's like, not me. I mean, I mean, maybe that guy, not me. Like, I know that guy's got me- is messed up, but I'm all right. Like, I don't do anything. I pay my taxes. Like, I cut my grass every week. Uh, like, I'm good. Like, I just, I'm. I'm just, there's nothing wrong with me. Now, the guy next door, he has issues. Maybe it's, it's, it's a judgment against him, but not me. And we all could kind of see ourselves in this story as like, well, not me. I, I've never done anything wrong. What did I do? And Jeremiah says in verse 11, because your fathers abandoned me, this is the Lord's declaration, and followed other gods and served them and bowed and worshiped to them. Your fathers abandoned me. They followed other gods. They worshiped other gods. They did not keep my instructions. They did more evil. You, talking to the people who think God's a little harsh, you did more evil than your fathers. You're actually worse than they were. Ezekiel 16, 51-52, uh, Samaria has not committed half your sins. This is prophet Ezekiel saying about Israel. You have committed more abominations than they, and they have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. You bear disgrace. You're worse than Samaria. You're worse than the people you think are horrible. You're worse than they are. You're, they're not half as bad as you are. This is God's word towards the people of Judah. The people, god's people bore God's own name and lived in God's own land. It was doubly wicked for them not to worship him alone. So God reasonably responds by giving them what they wanted. He sent them away to worship the gods they have chosen to worship. He says, I, I will hurl you from this land into a land that you and your fathers are not familiar with. They will worship other gods both day and night, for I will not grant you grace. Basically, you want to worship them? Then go ahead. I'm going to take you away from me, and I'm going to give you the gods. I'm going to place you in their own land. I'm going to let you go berserk and worship whatever you want to worship. So God gave them what they desired, and he removed the favor of his presence. They rejected the gracious Father to serve that which is empty, blind, and deaf, and weak. You says a similar thing in Romans 1.18. 1, 18 through 25, even though they knew God, they did not glorify I God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts. God reasonably responds to your sins and he sends you away from his presence. You don't want me? You don't want me to be your father? Then good, go, go away. I'll send you away if you don't want my love and you don't want my care. The last point is God's stubborn grace. God doesn't give up. If you think about it, going back to Genesis chapter 3, even though Adam and Eve sinned, even though that they did not listen to God's law, which is not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, even in that, God gives them grace. When he talks about the seed, his offspring, he says, I will strike your head, talking to the servant, that I will destroy you. I'm going to strike your head. And we see the first time in the Bible the promise of the gospel that will correct the wrongs of the fall. Galatians 4.4, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Christ Jesus is the great vindicator of the mistake by Adam and Eve. God the great father promises grace to Adam and Eve, that through the son of Adam, we see this in Luke 4.38, that through the son of Adam, that grace and salvation and redemption Romans five, twelve through seventeen. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abandoned for many. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gifts of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Even though... God is a stubborn father who loves his children too much. Even even after the flood, even after he destroys the the earth after the flood, he says that when the water receded, God blessed Noah and his family, and he promised not to destroy the world with a flood again. And he provides a sign of it. so interesting that even before the flood, he says, actually he says this before he gives them the rainbow, he says, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from your onward, even though you will... ...he promises them grace, he promises them... He establishes a relationship with them he will not let us go he's st- their hearts are sick, and desire what is not good for them, but He still loves us. He still loves them. And, and, and what's so interesting about the book of Daniel, is that when He cares for us, even though we're in, uh, we, we've, we, we've been judged, even though we are being disciplined, He still cares and loves for us. He returns you He's stubborn, he, but he, he calls us to come home. And when we come home, He will embrace us as a loving Father. There's a few applications to all this. Is You are to blame for your sin. You are to blame. It's not your parents' fault. It's the result of your environment. It's not a product of your youthfulness. Your heart is inclined to sin against your God and Father. And I am i in including myself in the same statement. I am prone to sin. I am prone to walk away from God. That is, the, that is the inclination of my heart. So we're all to blame for sin, but God is full of grace. And it's important for us to remember, even though our hearts are inclined to sin, He is full of grace. And that He will provide for us. He is a loving Father who will not give up on us who will continue to present himself to us, continue to show himself to us. And some of you are here because God cares for you and loves you and brings these people in your life, and he wants you to come home. He's the grieving father whose children have abandoned him, and He is the loving father wanting us to come home. He wants to embrace it. He wants to show his love for us, but yet we are so stubborn, we will not come home. You know, there's, uh, I want to conclude with this. Um, uh, I, I, some of us are going to Nepal in a few weeks, and we're hoping we need to see Everest. I don't know if that works. I don't know how that works, but we'd like to see the mountains and why people would pay so much money to go climb that thing and and risk their lives. I mean, people die all the time climbing that silly mountain. And if you know the the history of, of climbing Everest is that there's a Sherpa and their job, they're paid to take people up the mountain. They are guides up the mountain. And very rarely do people go up there without a Sherpa. Because it would be foolish to go up there without someone who guides you there, right? And I think it's so interesting about that example in that, I, in that picture is that for a lot of us, we're in a the, the journey of life and it's like climbing a mountain, And we really don't know how to get there. We need a guide to help us get there. And for some of us, we are so foolish to think we could climb down by ourselves and that we don't need a guide. We don't need a father to help us, to care for us, to love us, to provide for us as we journey. It's foolish not to rely on your father, to abandon him, to go your own way, to find your own path. When your loving Father has created you, He has given you life. He has provided for you. He has given you air to breathe. He's placed you where He's placed you for His purposes and for His glory and for your good. And why would we dare try to go and to walk and to climb without Him? So let's, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you so Lord, that you are the great Father who has given us life and breath. Lord, we are so stubborn. We are so foolish, Lord, because we abandon you. We go our own way. And Lord, we ask that you would um, show us your grace. Show us your mercy. May this day, may we believe in your grace. May we believe in your mercy as we leave this place. And relying on your mercy and grace, Lord, may we follow you. May we walk with you as Enoch walked. May we walk closely with you, our great Father, who cares for us, who loves us, who sent his Son to die for us, to give us redemption, to give us life. And for some of us in this room, uh, we have not been following God at all. We have not walked with him closely. We have tried to Uh, carve our own path without your guidance, without your love. We've abandoned you, Lord. Worshipped other things, relied on other things, trusted in other things. We have not believed that you were good. We believed other things were better. Lord, show us our foolishness. Show us our sin. And may we believe and trust in your grace. As we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, as an opportunity to embrace, Lord, your work in our lives. May we, For some of us who have never um, trusted in you, Lord, may we take this time as others are eating of the bread and drinking of the cup. May we pray. May we reflect. May we ask you, Lord, to save us. We love you, Lord. We pray.